Accreditation is a status that's earned, not given. Our featured BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders for this episode are The Hunger Project Trickle Up Program United American Patriots To find out more about these and other BBB Wise Giving Alliance accredited charity seal holders, go to give.org. You're listening to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor, powered by BBBgive.org. Here we explore the motivations that form the basis of giving and service. We inspire generosity and celebrate the transformative effects that giving and service have on the human spirit and on community. The conversations featured on the podcast also uncover giving strategies that educate and provide tools to help listeners make impactful gifts of both their time and money. We hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast, powered by BBBgive.org. Give.org is the nation's standards-based charity evaluator. It's also your one-stop source for information on giving and reports on the most asked about charities. I'm Mark Taylor. So today, you know, we're going to we're going to talk all things humane. We're going to talk all things animals and with me to have a conversation about animals and the humane treatment of them is none other than Kitty Block, who is the CEO of the Humane Society of the United States. Kitty, welcome to the Heart of Giving podcast. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Well, Kitty, it's so ironic. I have to always start by <laughs> your name being Kitty, you know, and we're talking about animals. And I'm sure that when the board was looking for a CEO and they saw your name, that was like a big deal for them. Anybody named Kitty has to be perfect for for our organization, right? It's great. Destined. This was, this was my calling from an early, early time. So there you go. <laughs> Well, wonderful. Well, Kitty, I know that there's so many things that the Humane Society does that people are probably unaware of. So let's get into your mission a little bit and talk about some of the programs that you're operating today to help people get up to speed on what's really happening at the Humane Society. So our overall mission is to build a more humane world for animals. And so we do that by focusing on today's worst cruelties. So we are involved in rescuing animals in disaster situations and working with with their pet owners to get them all to safe places, cruelty cases. But we also work on policy, education, legislation, corporate reform, and that's all directed at preventing tomorrow's suffering. So through that work is really how we are working to to build a more humane world for animals. Fantastic. So let's talk about, for instance, some of the work you're doing on the Hill to advocate on behalf of these sentient beings. So we work uh, in every state, pretty much across the country, working state legislation, working in the communities to, to get that sort of groundswell. So when you get to the federal level, all our policy work there is in really getting at working to getting at the institutions or the sort of entrenched systems that 
perpetuate unnecessary cruelty, like stopping cosmetic testing on animals. Entirely not relevant and not good for humans. We currently have that introduced in Congress. We recently got legislation passed where it's called the Big Cat Public Safety Act, and that prevents people from owning tigers, which is crazy to think that people do dangerous wild animals living in their basement. We banned that, and we're working with the government to get these animals either surrendered in a sanctuary and so on. So we work a lot of different areas that we focus on. Now, we see a lot of more domesticated animals that you are also helping in a variety of ways. So cats, dogs, pets that we would have in our home that add lots of meaningful value to our lives. In what ways are you working to protect them and to support their life cycles? It's such a it's such an important question. Our bond, our relationship with our companion animals, our dogs, our cats, guinea pigs, is so strong and they really are our family. And so one of the programs that I am most proud of is something called our our Pets for Life, which is part of our overall access to care. And what we do with that program is we go into communities where there are veterinarian deserts, where people don't have access to the vital resources they need to care for their dogs and cats, their family members. So we go in community by community, working with partners, mentoring partners to provide resources, dog food, working with Chewy and Mars and ways for them to get vouchers for veterinary care, keeping pets and families together before they're ever surrendered to a shelter because that's just a cycle that is really hard. And so that's a program that has been going on for a number of years. We've just served our 1 million client, couldn't be more proud. And that, but we also do the policy work. So we focus, you know, what's immediate, what's the immediate crisis, but we also work on legislation. For instance, we just got it passed in California where people who live in subsidized housing can't be blocked from moving in with their pets. And it's so important because people make a choice. They have to make hard choices. And we've heard so many terrible cases about people living on other people's couches because they would not leave their dog behind. And so getting pet-friendly housing, stopping these exorbitant fees is so critical. And of course, we work on ending cruel puppy mills, that pipeline of breeding dogs over and over again for profit. We're, we're knocking that out. Yeah, talk about that a little bit, because I know that's been a hallmark of your work for some time. Help us appreciate what the real challenges are there and how you're going about addressing it. So as I, people love, people love their dogs and we understand that. So sometimes people go to a pet store to buy a dog, not with any malintent, not knowing the situation, But as my dog comes running up to me right now, what happens is they are part, it's creating this cycle where mother dogs are being bred over and over and over again in crates. These animals are usually sick. They are overbred, which causes lots of other genetic problems. And there's an overpopulation of dogs and cats. 
Um, and you can go to your shelters, your rescue groups. There are so many that need homes. So we're working on legislation to prevent pet stores from selling puppies from puppy mills. And so they can work with their local shelter. And a lot of them do PetSmart, uh, you know, Petco. They have dogs in there sometimes and cats from shelters that they're working with to try to help adoptions. It's so important. And again, it's well-meaning, intentioned people who just want to bring a, a dog into their life. But it's really not the way to do it. Yeah. So to explain puppy mill to me, just so that everyone understands. Yes. These are these breeding factories where you are cramming mother dogs and male dogs in there, and they just keep them breeding over and over again in pretty terrible conditions. You know, we have gone undercover in so many breeding operations so you can see how these animals are living. Mothers are not, are not well. The puppies are sick. And they're just moving them out. You know, they're birthed, they're having them born, move them out, ship them and get them to pet stores. And, you know, we've got footage of from the whole process from moving to being sold in these pet stores and behind the scenes when they're not well. And that's something we are really focused on. Because again, it's a lot of people, you know, come to us and say, you know, we adopted, we, we bought this dog. We thought we were doing the right thing. This dog is really sick paid you know, almost $5,000 for this animal. And now we're at the vet all the time. And it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Wow. Kitty, let's talk about you for a bit. How did you decide that working on behalf of animals would be a career for you? I joke, it's in my DNA. It's not just my name. <laughs> it is in my DNA. It has been something that I've felt just strongly. It's, it, you know, as long as I can remember. The one point that I remember really distinctly was second grade. We were going on a field trip to Ringling Brother Circus. And I remember being so excited, you know, the night before, couldn't wait, couldn't wait to go there. And then getting there, seeing the elephants, looking scared and stressed, seeing the tigers, you know, when they're using the whips and then the bull hooks on the, the elephants. And just thinking, this is not making me happy. This is making me really sad. And I remember looking at the faces of my friends and I thought, you know, you don't want to be different. You don't want to, you want to go along. So they're laughing and I'm kind of laughing. And then I'm like, I really, this feels wrong to me. And I just remember that moment very clearly that this is when I thought, nope, there's something wrong here. And I want to figure out what's wrong about it. So just sort of developing that way. And of course, we have so many rescue dogs, cats, birds growing up. And so I knew this was something I wanted to do. And I went to law school with that intention because I felt that everybody needs a lawyer, even animals. <laughs> and what could I bring to it with that background? Mm, amazing. And you did. So how about that? So how long have you been doing this? Oh, my goodness. Okay. So I started when I was like five at the organization. <laughs> 31 years, you know, child product, no, 31 no years in the Humane Society. Yes, 31 years at the organization. Wow. wow. Unbelievable. See, young people today, and I, 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 of course, they're not a monolith. So let me back off from, you know, casting people into that category. But I want to make sure people understand when they say we want to have an impact through social good work that they appreciate that this is a long-term situation. It's not usually possible 
for us to luck into something where in a year or two, we can do something and it makes a huge difference. It usually takes us years, decades before we can see the kind of change that we want to see. If I were to ask you that question, what have you seen over the last 30 years that you would never have experienced had you not stuck in there with it? It's such an important point you raise that the most important issues, the most entrenched, the ones that require the most effort over and over again are the most important issues. And you know, when you win something, you then you have to defend it and you don't want it to slide back. I mean, it's, you never get to fully walk away from something. You just keep doing the march of progress. And that really is the key. And just to circle back to something I said, a hundred and how many years later, 120 years later, so longer than me in the movement, Ringling Brothers has now returned cruelty-free. No more animals in their circus. That's huge. They are the mothership. If they are changing their business model, then everybody else can do it. And we put decades, I mean, decades of effort into making that happen, going state by state, working on legislation where they couldn't use whips or bullhooks or other things, which makes it impossible to really have them in your traveling circus because they have to be controlled with these really aggressive tools. And so just working to get them banned, going state by state, that slow march of progress gets us to these incredible points. Now, not everything takes 100 plus years, but as I always say to my colleagues, especially my younger ones, if you win it overnight, you're going to lose it overnight. It either wasn't that big or it is so easily undone because anything you can win that quickly, for the most part, is is not going to be lasting. So dig in and know that you are standing on the shoulders of others who have been in the movement for many years. Keep building on that progress and just keep keep knowing the end goal and you'll get there. Now, another area that you help us think through and operate more humanely is the food supply. So many of us eat meat, we eat animals for our daily sustenance. And yet those animals have to be raised in a way that we can abide. So talk about how you've helped with that and what companies are now doing as a result of your work that they weren't doing before. So it's so important, this issue, the factory farming really is what we're talking about are these massive enclosed uh, facilities where There's never been more, let me just say, there's never been more animals in agriculture than any other time in history, and there's never been less farmers than there are now. So the old ways of the husbandry and the relationship and the small farms are still some, but for the most part, they're these massive, massive conglomerates, which in addition to animal cruelty, there's human health implications because they do pump these animals with antibiotics because they are so tightly confined and packed together. It's a water issue. It's a climate change issue. All that is produced from these factory farms next to the number, one of the top reasons that lead to climate change and greenhouse gases. And so it's a problem. It's a problem that is goes beyond animals. And so for our work, for our piece, we are really trying to get 
a movement away from these factory farms. Animals do not have to be in this extreme confinement. You can also introduce more plant-based options. So we have gone state by state, and we just won in the Supreme Court, uh, Proposition 12, which I will mention, where we're getting these animals out of extreme confinement. It is also a human health issue because when these animals are in these conditions and people consume them, it does have an impact. So we have gone state by state and getting you know chickens out of these battery cages that are so small they can't even open their wings, mother pigs out of these crates where they can't even stand up or turn around you know basically their entire lives. And a lot of companies recognize that this really is the way to go. And so a lot have joined with us. The egg industry is fully on board. The majority of the eggs now are, are cage-free. I think it's The percentage is so high in this country, and we're doing this around the world. Pork industry is a little bit slower, though there are companies that are moving in the right direction. And so we'll continue to work with them. But it's an important issue, and it's important to recognize where your food comes from and where we can do better as a society. Look for products that are truly humane, cage-free, crate-free products. And one meal a day or once a week. Try plant-based options. It's very good for you. It's very healthy. And there's a big impact on the earth and our environment. If each of us just said, for instance, one day a week, we're not going to eat any meat, what would that mean for our environment, our society, and for these these animals? I guess I should ask what it's going to mean for the economy as well, but I'm sure the business is not concerned about that. It's good all the way around. There are very few causes from, and I'm not saying all of them, but but it's so interesting with animal protection issues. From the moment you wake up, you can make simple choices that have a direct impact on animals. From the moment you wake up, what you put in your mouth, if you're cold outside, you're going to put on a fur coat or not, you can make choices. This does add up. Every meal adds up when you're talking about everybody in the country, the planet, as we work on these issues globally, it has a huge impact. Never underestimate what simple choices that you can make on a daily basis and what that adds up to. And now it's time for our giving tips segment with Bennett Weiner, one of the world's most renowned experts on charity accountability and the COO of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance. One of the most asked about questions we get at BBB Wise Giving Alliance is from donors that want to get off charity mailing lists. I'm talking about the written appeals that you may get in the mail asking you for a donation. So how do you reduce the volume if that is an issue for you? First thing I'd say is discard the appeals that you're not interested in. That's the easiest thing to do. They don't expect a donation from everyone. But if you want to get off a specific charity's mailing list, the best thing to do is to write them directly, include a copy of the mailing label, the return card, so they'll know exactly how to get your name off their mailing list. Another thing you can do is you can register with Direct Marketing Association's Mail Preference Service at dmachoice.org. By signing up with that, you'll be able to get your name off some mailing list that are out there, reduce the volume. So there are some things you can do. Just be patient because uh, sometimes it takes a little while for that a mail reduction to go down after you take these steps. But if you do those things, 
it certainly should help the volume of mail that you get from charities. Kitty, I know that your work is fraught with challenge. And so what are some of the counter issues that you have to deal with in order to progress in your mission? I mean, I guess some my guess would be if you're one of these large producers of animal food, then you're not going to be thrilled with some of the suggestions. What are some of the arguments, though, when you sit down with these company executives? What are some of the arguments that you can give them that actually make both business sense to them as well as humane sense? It's so important that we do make that business case because I'd love to say that that everyone makes cho- you know choices because it's the right thing to do, but we know there's an economy. There has to be an economic model that's viable for your business. And so we spend a lot of time doing that. And I think the first hurdle is, well, it's what we've always done and it works. You know change in so many sectors. There's so much resistance. And so what we say is change the model. It's going to be economically viable and you're going to win a lot more consumers on your side. Go against consumer trends. So we always show the consumer trends. We always show what are people purchasing and why? Are they paying a few cents more for cage-free eggs? Are they shunning your product because your product has been associated with X? Are they moving towards this product? When we passed the law in California, it was well over 60% said they don't want this anymore. That message is heard loud and clear by the industry. A lot of the industry said, oh, yep, we heard you. We're getting on board. No Tyson's or Mel. Others say, yep, we, we, we got the message. Uh, some others are fighting. They're spending a lot of money. They took a multiple court cases, lost every single one, eventually lost in the Supreme Court, spending all that capital just to try to thwart where consumers now are. They should be using that money to invest in converting their systems because that really is the future, that consumers care. And I was reading a stat the other day about Gen Z. They care more about not just humane, but environmentally humane products than just about any other generation. I like to think it's us boomers. It's really this generation now that is, cares about these issues. And when they're heads of households and they're making big purchasing dollars, these companies better get in line. Well, that makes a lot of sense because I think we're even approaching environmental issues that way. When I speak to people who are advocating for a better environment, what they're saying is when we talk to what we deem are large polluters or people who have companies that have major uh, negative environmental footprints, we talk to them about the economic consequences to their businesses if they continue along that path. And that's when I think you get the most interest from these companies. And as long as you continue to do that, I'm sure we'll get closer to you know what you see as a more humane uh, society. So it's, it's really great to hear that those are the arguments that you're making. Unfortunately, people don't just listen to, well, this is the morally right thing to do. And in many cases, people don't even know what that is. So, but they do know what the money is. They do know (laughs) 
they do know how it affects their pocketbooks. And uh, obviously, if consumer sentiment has changed and we're looking at a different kind of relationship between humans and our food and how it's procured and, and placed before us, then companies will have to listen to that and benefit from that when they do. Right. I think that's what I'm hearing. That, that's right. You can either drag your feet or you can get try to get ahead of it and be that company that people go to. And that's really the decisions you have to make as a business. And this doesn't just bode well for, for animals and, and humane ways of you know, humane products, cosmetics, not test on animals. I think this really shows an exciting time for younger folks who really care about a lot of issues. They're really thoughtful about it. And they're voting earlier. So, you know, when they turn 18, they're voting. It's important to realize, you know, as been in the movement as long as I have, you go through swings and ups and downs of when you think you're just about to make that change. But what's always exciting is when you have another generation coming in and this matters to them. That's that's everything. Well, Kitty, one other thing I wanted to to mention to people is that the Humane Society seems to be this amazing opportunity for people who want to be supportive of a similar mission to join forces with you in different ways. How can people connect and get involved and support what you're doing? Thank you for that. Yes, we need you. We need you if you're an action taker, a supporter, a volunteer. It takes all of us to make that difference, to have that impact. And all that is needed is just a a desire to help and protect animals and a willingness to engage. So we welcome you. You can go to humanesociety.org. There's information about volunteering, donating, taking actions, doers and donors. We need all of you. And it's a great organization and a great way to spend your time if you think this is how to engage and what to do. And again, we welcome you. So I appreciate that question and I'm we always welcome folks joining with us. So you are your organization and you personally probably too, but don't let me speak for you. I kind of see you as both an activist as well as an institution. You're an activist working inside of an institution. And It's so interesting to me that we can do both. We can be activists, which means that we want to bring the attention of these issues to people in a scalable way and get them involved and activated around the issues that we believe are important. But also we can work the issue inside of an institution and we can use some of our advocacy even to shape how we do that. The Humane Society is one of a number of organizations, it seems, that has that going. How do you both maintain, though, the rigid and committed activism to achieving your goals and balance that against what can be a slower process of moving inside of an institution that has processes and practices and procedures that have to be met? How do you balance those two from a leadership standpoint? It's a question that I'm sure many organizations do go through. Both are equally important. You need to 
to have that drive, that desire to make change. And that's our committed staff. And those are our supporters who join with us. There is such an ethos of we are going to do this, we're going to accomplish it. And people know that when you join with a larger group, the work becomes easier. And you've got a lot of people with expertise to rely on to help keep it moving forward. You've also got people around you who help you be resilient and know that things don't happen overnight. And guess what? Sometimes some processes, though I get that they can be cumbersome at times, they protect you going forward so you can continue to do that incredible work. And so it is It is always about, we are a global organization. So magnify some of those processes and what that means when you're operating on nearly every time zone and on every continent. But making sure that you are doing the right things and that you are practicing good governance and that you are doing everything that you need to do. When you lock that down and you make that a priority, which we do, the advocacy work becomes easier because you got a clear lane to just advocate for animals because we have set things up in a way that is what you need to keep and maintaining and running an incredible institution like our organization. Kitty, I'm about to become the board chair of an organization called Convergence Policy. And Convergence Policy has this process of bringing people together who have various opinions and thoughts about how they want to see various issues resolved in our society. And in many cases, people are at complete opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of what they see going forward. But I think this is a really important institution. It's so important, as I said, that I'm going to be board chair, because I think in our society, we're pushed to be either this or that. You know, you either support humane treatment of animals or you don't. But we also know that there are many people who are all over the spectrum when it comes to this. People have good reasons for doing the things that they do or so they think. And so I'm getting to this question for you. Are there opportunities within the humane society, which is certainly advocating for the purest and best possible treatment of animals, to engage with people who simply just don't get it. They just don't understand why there's a need for what you do. That, well, these are just animals. Why should we care? Are there opportunities for you to sort of talk to them and listen even to what they have to say and have your argument sharpened, I guess, by their perspectives? Are there opportunities for that And if so, how have you been able to learn from them and grow? Well, first of all, congratulations on becoming board chair. It sounds like a a really important organization and role, of course. And you're right. Screaming at each other with different philosophies, ideologies is not going to move the needle one way or the other. And The very people we need to talk to are the ones who we need to engage with. Talking in an echo chamber to people who are 100% like-minded, that can be nice and fun, but that does not move the needle on the cause. And I can give you one really concrete example, one that I am 
so proud of. It's something that we started just about 10 years ago. So talk about the, the long arc, but coming to a beautiful conclusion. As I mentioned, we are in a global organization. And about 10 years ago, we started something called Models for Change. And we are working in South Korea to end the dog meat trade. Now, South Korea is the only country that farms dogs, so they literally are, are raising them to, to be used, consumed for food. And so we came in there. We have an office there. And it was never about judging. We weren't going to come in and shame anybody. We, weren't gonna, we wanted to understand what this is, why people are doing it. What does this really look like? And as we got into it, we started meeting with the dog meat farmers. And to be honest, that was really hard. That was really hard for me. Someone who grew up and knowing this is my cause, and I could very easily have that dog farmer be the, the devil. But I was like, we're not going to make change unless we work with the dog meat farmers. We can do all the polling we want. We can do all the other things that we want, but we have got to work with them and understand why. Well, it turns out that they became our best advocates. So we worked with them to transition out. They didn't want this business. It's not something their children want. It's handed down usually. And the children were mortified. The last thing they wanted to go into, the farmers didn't really see a way out. So we worked with about 18 different farmers, dog meat farmers, to close their farms and to transition into crop growing, water irrigation, other systems, other forms that are humane. It was a win-win. And then we started working with them to become our advocates with the government and saying, look, you know, this can be done. We don't need to keep this business propped up. Again, show the data. South Koreans were moving away from consuming dog meat. It wasn't something that they wanted to do. It's kind of like whale meat in Japan. It was an older generation and the younger generations just didn't want this anymore. So we worked with the dog meat farmers. Many became very, very close. And again, advocates working with us. And the government announced about three weeks ago, after 10 years, that they are going to work to phase out and down dog meat farming, the industry in South Korea in three years. And they're setting up a system where the dog meat farmers will be compensated along the lines of what we did. So they're adopting this model for change. Because again, it's people have to live. They didn't do this because they were bad or had no feeling. They did it because there really weren't any options. And I will never forget one farmer, you know, we had a lot of press at the event. And I'm sorry for going on long about this one, but this one just gets to me. No, this is great. So we had a lot of press there. And so a lot of Korean press and the farmer started speaking and I could tell he was getting a little you know, agitated and I couldn't understand what he was saying. So I was asking one of our translators and I said, is everything okay? And she said, and she started tearing. And I said, what's he saying? She's like, I'll tell you in a minute. And so when he was done speaking, you know, the reporters came up and shook his hand. And what he said was he loved dogs, but as long as he had this business, he would not allow himself to touch the dogs. They were going to be slaughtered. He could not be, he said he couldn't be human. He could not let that side. So he had to keep them at a distance and treat them the way he did. He said the moment we came and he knew the farm was going to be closed and he was transitioning out of the business, he allowed himself to feel again, something that he had prohibited himself from doing. 
to be with those dogs again. And he helped us move them out of the crates, get them to uh, care for the animals. And it was really, it was a moment in time where I was like, you've got to understand people. You've got to work with people, give them options, talk and understand why things are being done the way they're being done. What an incredibly powerful story. I shouldn't even say story. What an incredibly powerful reality that together you were able to create. Well, Kitty, we're to the end of this, but I wanted to just put out one additional question for you, which is, how do you see the future of this work? And what kind of shifts are you perceiving in the environment now that would make us more humane and more favorable toward animals? And I will also ask if there are any shifts that are arguing in the opposite direction that you have to address. I think that, again, the younger generations are moving moving towards this more easily. I, I believe companies recognize they do have to make this shift. Our work is not easy going forward. There is always going to be resistance. And it's how you build those partnerships to keep moving forward. And so it is, it's an exciting time. It's also a challenging time. We are a global commerce community. So if you work in an area and let's say you, you know, stop, for instance, in the US, we stopped horse slaughter, companion horses, race horses, but then the horses are just been shipped to Canada and Mexico to be slaughtered and exported. So the challenges are you have to think globally. Like, how do you not just shift problems? How do you really make sure that you are doing the work in all the places you need to be, which makes things hard? But the great news is that we are building partnerships and capacity around the world. It's really, it takes all of us and everywhere to really think about how do you make this change and make it lasting and make it economically viable. So it stays and you can bring along industry and others because that's really what's going to lock that change in for good. And of course, people want to do the right thing. Majority of people you talk to overwhelmingly say, of course, I I don't want to be cruel to animals. Of course, I would. But, but. And so just understand what those buts are and how you can keep moving forward. So, Kitty, how are you inspired? I mean, this isn't easy work. As you mentioned, you do have lots of counters to your advocacy that you have to deal with. And sometimes I'm sure that can be very challenging and and very emotionally draining. But you have to stay nonetheless positive. You have to stay inspired. What is it that you do in your life that keeps you positive and excited and as easy as it can be to be negative about things and where we are? you still have to be able to overcome that. So what do you turn to? What is it that our listeners should maybe also think about doing when they have these moments? It, you're, there are hard times. There are moments where you do cry. You just think, my goodness, I've spent so much time on something to be knocked down. And so what you think about is, okay, so what does what does that mean? I rely on the people around me. I rely on our incredible staff who are in this, who are in this for the long haul, who want to make that difference. And 
I think about, okay, sometimes this was so hard, but what would I be doing otherwise? I would just be looking at it from the outside and saying, oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. That to me is harder when you don't engage on any level. So if you're engaging and you don't get what you need now, that to me is not as hard as if I'm looking on the outside and I'm lamenting it, but I'm not able to affect any change. And so take the long view. And you also have to celebrate when you do have victories. And I say this, and I know our own, my own staff don't do this enough. And if you're all listening to this one, we do. Please celebrate. These moments are important. Congratulate each other. Take a moment. Take a bow. Yep, you've got to go back and probably defend it starting on Monday. But take in that moment. It's good to do that. It's important to do that. Well, You've been listening to Kitty Block, who is the CEO of the Humane Society of the United States. And as you can tell, you'll not find a more passionate individual in our sector working to achieve a mission. Kitty, I just want to thank you for joining the Heart of Giving podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, for anyone listening for the first time, please know that this is a weekly show And each week we come out with a new episode. We hope you'll subscribe to the show by going to any podcast platform or you can go to YouTube as well. And if you want to support the podcast, that would be great, too. You can just go to give.org and make a donation and we'll be sure to put it to good use. Thank you for listening and we'll see you back here next week. You've just listened to the Heart of Giving podcast with Art Taylor. Be sure to tune in next time for a brand new episode. To listen to our other interviews, visit heartgiving.podbean.com. That's heartgiving.podbean.com. Subscribe to our show on major podcast platforms. The thoughts and opinions expressed on this podcast are the views and opinions of the guests, not those of the BBB Wise Giving Alliance or program affiliates. This podcast is for information and educational purposes only and is copyrighted with all rights reserved. This podcast is protected by Podbean's Terms of Service.